everyone. Thank you for tuning in to ReptileApartment.com. This is John Taylor. Once again, I am your host. And, of course, we are brought to you today by the one and only Comic Karma, your comic book journey destination, where you can learn a lot from Mr. Michael McClarty, one of the geniuses in the comic book industry. Give him a tumble, ComicKarma.com. Today we're coming to you from the NARBC, which is one of the largest shows in North America that I know of. They also travel across, I believe, it's three to four states. Anyway, today we actually caught up with one of my idols, Dr. Brian Grieg Fry of VenomDoc.com. He sat down with us and talked to us a little bit about uh, his current work with the Komodo Dragons as well as uh, some of the other subjects that he's working on. So sit back, enjoy, and hope to see you soon. Thank you. So, um, sitting here today, uh, amazingly enough, with Dr. Uh, Brian Fry. Um, how did you get involved in Komodo Dragons? Because I watched, of course, all the you know fanboy geek stuff that you've done on Discovery Channel, and watched you grab sea snakes out of the, in a moving boat out of the ocean. And next thing I know, I see pictures on your website of you cuddling with Komodo Dragons. <laughs> of course, I read your um, your papers that I had access to anyway, on that you had proved that the Komodos were actually venomous and not poisonous, or sorry, that it wasn't the saliva that uh, people were referring to. How did all this come about? Um, well, the whole idea of the bacteria as a weapon just never sat right because bacteria doesn't work that way. You know, that okay. First off, for it to be in their mouths, you know, you, they would have to be facilitating it. They would have to be somehow culturing it. But if you look in the mouth of a Komodo dragon, the gums are shiny and pink and the teeth okay. are nice, nice and white and clean. They're actually remarkably clean out animals. They're much cleaner than a lion, for example. When a Komodo dragon feeds, it'll sit there and lip lick for 10 or 15 minutes while rubbing its head in a leaf litter. They really clean all the go wow. up. Plus, they have a dramatic preference for fresh prey over carrion. They really don't like eating rotting getting dead prey. They much okay. prefer a fresh kill. So if you, there's two things you need to consider. First is their natural ecology, and second is there's an artificial man-made ecology. So with their natural ecology, they're evolved to feed on animals of 40 to 50 kilo or 80 to 100 right. pounds. Right. They have a 90% kill rate. Okay. 75% of the animals are killed outright, mm-hmm. and 90% of them are dead within three or four hours. Right. Of the ones that are killed outright, that's from mechanical damage. That's from the teeth slicing vital organs, organs. cutting through a major artery, veins. things like that. But then the ones that die within three or four hours, they bleed out. Now, what we've okay. shown is with the venom that the venom exaggerates the mechanical damage. It keeps the blood going longer. It also drops the blood pressure further. But the toxins have two main sites of action. That They have ones that block blood coagulation, then they also have ones that relax the aorta and dramatically drop the blood oh, pressure. Okay. So they only have a 10% escape rate of their natural prey items. Now, people have been looking at the unnatural scenario which is the water buffalo. Right. Water buffalo are actually introduced to the islands. They're not native. They were brought oh. in by man. So you have the, uh, the animals are feeding on an animal they weren't evolved to feed on. Komodo dragons originally. didn't evolve to feed on water buffaloes. Plus, the water buffaloes are living in an ecology other than what they evolved to live in. 
So okay. there's a high escape rate when the Komodo dragons attack the water buffalo. Now the water buffaloes then run out, run away with these deep, very large wounds in their right. legs. And then, being water buffaloes, what do they do? Do they go stand in water? Water. Not large marsh-like systems like they would be naturally living in right. in parts of mainland <laughs> Asia, but rather they live in small. They go and they stand in the water of very small, stagnant water holes, which are Dang. festering, disgusting. The most putrid water you can imagine. The water right. is black with all this green stuff floating on the top of it. Now, if you had a leg wound and you went and stood in that water even for five minutes, imagine the infection that Bacterial you would get. Infection, right. Now, imagine you went and stood there almost every day for weeks on end. What do you think is going to happen? You're wow. going to get a magnificent <laughs> infection. Right. So, infections do occur after Komodo dragon bites, but only to the water buffalo, only to unnatural prey items. And that's the part that people have been completely misunderstanding as they've been looking at the wrong scenario. They haven't been looking at the natural ecology, they've been looking at an artificial man-made event. Wow. And that's completely confused the perception of the Komodo dragons. Right. And it really is that simple. That venom was overlooked. The venom isn't like the venom of a cobra. It's not the primary weapon. Rather, the venom is there to support the teeth. The teeth are the okay. primary weapon. The venom is just there to exaggerate the effects, to prolong the bleeding and further the lowering of the blood pressure, while the whole bacteria thing actually has nothing to do with the dragons. There's only been one study that looked at bacteria and dragons, and all that they found is either bog-standard bacteria, the same sort of thing that you would get from swabbing our mouth okay. or the mouths of any other animal, or the kind of things that you would expect to find in the gut tract of a mammalian prey item, like what they're feeding on. They, right. th with this one study, they really zeroed in and focused on one type of bacteria, a Pasteurella multicida, a bacteria that they said was the main pathogen, but only two out of the 26 dragons that they looked at actually had that bacteria. So uh -huh. if, if it was actually a weapon, it should be present in high concentrations right. in every single dragon. Right, exactly. Rather than just a transient that's present in just, what, 8% of the 8%, dragons. right. Wow. And it, it just comes down to that simple. And that goes to the heart of science. That goes to the inherent beauty of science. Of right. It's amazing what you can find if you just take the, the time to look. Right, right. It's almost like in, um, what is the term I think, Occam's Razor. Yeah, the simplest, the simplest explanation. explanation yeah. Right. That's just amazing. Yeah, so it blows my mind that both aspects have been overlooked all this right, time. Right, that's that what I'm saying. Is if you look at the picture of a Komodo dragon, call up an image of a Komodo dragon or any other monitor lizard in Google, right. and you'll see venom glands in the lower jaw. You'll see these big bulges. Okay. It's that obvious of a structure, but it's not the same thing as like the venom in a cobra, which is dangerously venomous. So there's a big difference between having venom and being medically important. That's another thing that people have had a hard time oh. wrapping their head around, like most snakes are venomous. Even right. a humble garter snake is venomous, but not all right. of them are dangerous. Right. All spiders are venomous, venomous. but only a small handful of spiders are medically important to humans. Right, and being medically important meaning dangerous exactly. or could put you in so, a life-threatening situation. So there's venomous from a technical evolutionary perspective, and then there's venomous from the perspective of medical slash legal. Right, gotcha. And there's a dramatic difference between the two. Awesome. That's just incredible. I, <laughs> the opportunity to speak with you is incredible in itself, but that story is just unbelievable. Now, how much time did you actually spend on Komodo to actually get 
all the data needed for your research? Um, I've been to Komodo a few times, and okay. every single time I go back, we find something new. Like on this expedition that we just did, that was when it finally clicked. It, the, you know, what had been staring me in the face all this time of, mm -hmm. you know, I, you know, I was thinking to myself, all right, well, sometimes there are infections on the water buffalo, where is it coming from? Because you know, I didn't believe that it was from right. the Komodos. And then we were sitting there, we are looking at the water buffalo standing in the water and <laughs> smacking my hand to my head of, well, there we go. You know, the, right. It's this stagnant, horrible, disgusting water. Because like, we watched a water buffalo take a crap in the water and then lay back down and start wallowing in it again and then have a nice long drink. And it's like, all right, now, I was thinking to myself, what happens if I had a cut and I was in that water? Right, and did the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> like the last exped expedition we did, the one before this, uh -huh. um, I actually ended up with blood poisoning myself from a boating accident in Flores, where I ended up getting slammed up against one of the pylons at the pier of Flores, where the water there is as disgusting as uh, the water of anywhere else. Wow. And within 36 hours, I was in critical care with septicemia. So bacterial oh. infections can occur from environmental oh, sources. Right. Now, um, on another kind of separate note, if someone were to read this article that we're doing right now, this interview, what would be the biggest thing you would tell someone, young, up and coming, that looks at you and says, I need to do that? Um, that they need to be themselves. Okay. That they need, like, I'm the first Brian Fry. I'm right. not the next whatever. Right. You know, that what I do is what I do. You know, mm -hmm. that, and it's because I follow my dream that I have the passion, I have the fuel. Right. That my passion allows me to work just a little bit harder. Right. You know, grind through a little bit more. Science is a horrible career. It's the most manic depressive existence you can imagine where, you know, sometimes you think you're doing awesome in the lab and realize you made a mistake and all your research is rubbish up to that point. And Ooh. that can happen at 10 a.m. on a Monday wow. morning. You know, that, you know, the emotional roller coaster is astounding. So you need the passion to continue you through the drudgery, mm -hmm. through the tough times. So they need to find an area that they love, a part of science that has absolutely seduced them, okay. and to carve that out and make it their own. And that's how evolution works. That right. it's, it's harder to, it's very difficult to displace an animal that's already occupying a niche. It's much easier for something to occupy a unique niche and carve that out and make it their own. So that's my advice for anyone who wants to do science, okay. is to find an area that's unique, find a gap, to find a, somewhere in between layers that nobody is, and occupy it. Find something that they love and make it their own. Okay. And uh, last question for you. Um, I know you've uh, personally been envenomated by a cobra before. I believe I read your article where you were talking about driving down the road as, uh, sorry, somebody else was driving, and you were talking about the driver next to you driving by looking at you, and your head was swollen up. Oh, uh, yeah, that was from an allergic reaction to death adder. Oh, death adder, I'm yeah, sorry. And then my you... became an absolute pumpkin head from that. <laughs> and uh, the lady next to us actually ran off the road because we're going through a double lane roundabout, and she looks over, and this pumpkin head, I've got my sleeve in my teeth, pulling right. up to expose my shoulders, I'm jabbing a needle into my arm, <laughs> and now I'm jabbing adrenaline to keep from going right. into shock, and she just thinks I'm a junkie shooting up, and she actually went off the road. Oh my god. And I wonder, I mean, she must have needed therapy after that, I can only imagine what she thought was going on in the car next to her. <laughs> 
That is awesome. And now, how many times have you been envenomated? Um, I've had 26 bites. No kidding. Yeah, but I've milked at this time probably nearly 6,000 snakes. Right, right. So, you know, it happens. You know, you're working with inherently dangerous animals it, that are actually happen. trying to defend themselves. Um, most of my bites have come from working with new species because every particular species or within a group of species, they behave in sort of conserved ways within that species. Right. But that okay. means that, that they're sense. going to do things, little tricks that you're not going to expect. expect. Right. And sometimes they go left when you expect them to go, go right, right, that sort of thing. So, you know, right. It happens. You know, like Michael Schumacher's wrecked a few cars along yeah. the way. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you. No, but the thing is, you know, is that a couple of my bites have come from being complacent. Like one of my death out of bites came from, I was casual around the snake, I'll be honest about that. that wow. When people ask me what the most dangerous snake to have in a collection is, my answer is a calm one, because you drop your guard. And casualness right. leads to casualties. Jeez. I had one particular death adder that was an absolute sweetheart. And I must admit, I took liberties with her. Uh -huh. I wasn't as stringent with the protocols as I should have been because it, you know, it was so calm. Like, I never relax around a taipan. Right. I never get complacent around a taipan. Something like that right. keeps you on your toes all the time. But it's very easy to get complacent around a snake like that. And that was fine 99 times out of 100, but number 100 was a real interesting situation. Wow. That was actually the pumpkin head. Wow. It was that bite was you know, the one that I went into shock right. for. So that's, you can't drop your guard around these snakes. It's mm -hmm. so easy to, and really the calmest snake in your collection is your most dangerous snake because that's the one that you're going to let your protocols slip on. Right. That's the one that you're going to be a little too relaxed around. Right. And it's... It happens, you know, and you know, and many keepers will talk about that that they've had bites right. because they let their gun down around their favorite, that sweetheart. And right. the funny thing was, you know, that I was offended <laughs> when she bit me. I was shocked. Why did you do that? Yes. Why? Why? How could you do that to me? She was always fed first. I always kept her cage cleaned first. Right. She was, she was my favorite. favorite. You know, right. You know, right. She got all the attention. You know, right. The, the nasty ones were the ones that got cleaned right. last. You know? <laughs> exactly. She was the princess. <laughs> that is awesome. It happens. Well, Dr. Fry, I don't want to take any more of your time because I know you're still jet lagged, but I really appreciate your time. No problem. Thank you very much. Once again, thank you very much to Dr. Brian Greig Fry for sitting down with us at the NARBC show. And speaking of the NARBC, uh, next week we are sitting down with Brian Potter who actually puts together the NARBC show. He's going to talk to us a little bit about what it's like to actually organize these shows and travel the uh, country, as it were, getting all these shows organized and what it takes to do it, that kind of thing. And once again, we look forward to hearing your comments. Uh, give us some feedback. Let us know what you think and maybe possibly some future interviews that you guys would love to hear on reptileapartment.com's The Living Room.